and open it and turn to the Gospel of Matthew, which is the first book of the New Testament. Matthew, and we are still in chapter 5. If we live to the end of the service, we will finish it this morning, and then we'll move next week into chapter 6. But we are in the Sermon on the Mount, the great sermon of the great King, who would teach us the heart of God, show us the life that we should live as He has given His life for us. So let's read together. This is Jesus' sixth teaching from Old Testament law. And we read together beginning in verse 43. You have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For He makes His Son rise on the evil and on the good, sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Please be seated. I invite you to turn again in your Bibles to Matthew 5 and just follow along as we look through these verses this morning. The songs that we have sung have have described perfectly the gospel. And I begin this time by by challenging each one of us. Look to the Word of God and look to your life. Do they match up? Because we can claim to be many things. We can claim to be followers of Jesus, but if our lives do not look like Him, If we are not walking and living and moving in obedience to the Word of God, all of it, then we have a problem. And I'm not suggesting sinless perfection. We'll return to that at the end of the message. But I am suggesting that each one of us must come to faith in Jesus Christ alone for our salvation. There is salvation in no other person. No other name is given. And you can go to church seven days a week, morning, noon, and night. And you can sing the songs, and you can even read the Scripture. But if you have not come to faith and repentance, you are hopelessly lost. You say, well, I've been baptized. Baptism does not save Baptism identifies you as one who has been saved and then brings you into a church fellowship like this one where we can help you learn, grow, lean upon each other. And so my challenge to you this morning is, and you look in your heart and you will know this, 
You can, you can fool yourself because the heart is deceptive. But if your heart has been changed from darkness into light, then you understand that you are still a sinner in need of a Savior. We all are. Come to Christ. Come to Christ. I plead with you as if God himself were pleading. But I'm going to tell you something this morning. God does not beg you. He commands. You must repent. Do you understand? And if you have never turned from your selfishness, your sinfulness, and your own wandering ways, thinking that you can earn some kind of righteousness, and you have never put your faith and trust in the only righteous person that has ever lived, Jesus Christ, and have never been changed from death into life, and you have never had His righteousness imputed to you, let me say this one more time. Please, let today be the day that you respond to the call of the Holy Spirit to salvation. And I leave you with that to mull over as I speak to the church. Because this message that is before us this morning, no lost person can accomplish what is required here. Only redeemed people can, and it is not by their own doing. It is because of Christ that we can actually love our enemies. I've said all along through these previous five teachings, we come to the sixth from the law this morning, that that this is just, it just goes against our nature. Some people are easier to hate than they are to love. The lust of our heart drives our lives in ways that God would not have us live. And we come to the Word and we read it and then we turn and walk away as if we never saw it there before, thinking, well, uh, God will understand. (laughs) What does He require of you? Perfect obedience. And so he begins again with Scripture. And this one's a little interesting in verse 43 because the beginning of it is from Scripture. Leviticus 19, 18. We quoted it last week, and you have seen it before. Love your neighbor. Love your neighbor. Nowhere in the Old Testament does it say, hate your enemy. Oh, there are implications that are there. But nowhere does it command God's people, hate your enemy. Nowhere. But it's likely Jesus' audience has heard that, and it is likely that in some form or fashion you have heard that. So it is likely that the Pharisees were saying, well, as long as we love each other, we're okay. And it was true that in the tradition of the Jews that lived in in Jesus' day, they had a, a, a view of the Samaritans, half Jew, half Gentile. 
And they viewed them with hatred. They saw the the tax collectors, the publicans, and they hated them. And they saw the Gentiles, and they would pray. A good Jewish man would pray, God, I thank you that I am not a dog of a Gentile. That's how they viewed those who were not Jews. That was traditional, learned ways of life and teaching. And again, Jesus opposes what had been traditionally taught. And he gives and and, and, and accents, if you will, a more demanding ethic upon his followers. Christians, you must love your enemy. And then he says this. If if you don't love your enemy, you are no different than the tax collectors. You're no different than, than the pagans, those despised groups. And the reason the tax collectors were hated is that they worked for Rome, and they would exact what Rome required from their Jewish brothers, but then they would take extra. You remember the story of Zacchaeus? He was a wee little man. And a wee little man was he? He was a, an extremely wealthy man. And he had grown wealthy on the backs of his Jewish brothers and sisters. He meets them more than he should have taken. He meets Jesus. What happens to his life? Everything changes. I'm going to, I'm going to give it all back. I'm going to give back four times what I've taken from them. And that rich, evil little man became a, a financially poor, redeemed soul because he met Jesus. Everything changed. So if you want to look like the world, then you hate your enemies. You treat them uh, as, as if they didn't exist. Jesus says, almost everybody looks after their own. Tax collectors look after their own. I mean, their mamas loved them, right? Other tax collectors probably liked them, probably had little little club meetings. They could sit around and say, wow, boy, I got a lot of money this week. Yeah, did you see how angry those people got? They They all loved each other. But the test of genuine Christianity, and this is where you and I start looking into ourselves, is how we as believers treat those whom we are naturally inclined to hate. And we are naturally inclined to hate those who hate us, to mistreat those who mistreat us, and to even persecute those who persecute us. And so as we read and saw in Leviticus 19, 18, the real direction indicated by the law is love, rich love, costly love, extended even to enemies. A lot of times we think of, 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 of the word for love, agapao, agape love, and we think of it as, as, as self-giving regardless of our emotions, how many times have you heard this said? Maybe you've said it. Well, I have to love them, but I don't have to like them. Jesus said, you got to like them too. 
It's a change of heart. The love that, that is instructed by Jesus is not just sentiment and emotion, but it's also not the empty actions of one who does it because, well, in order to make God happy, i got to treat this guy with respect, so I guess I'll do it. But down in my heart, I really hate him. Anybody else have a problem with that besides me? This is a struggle, yes. It's a warfare. It is spiritual warfare. Christ's love is to be expressed in concrete action coming from a heart that truly, lovingly wants the best for a fellow human being no matter what their estate 1 Corinthians chapter 13, you would recognize that as the love chapter, and it would be fitting if we're talking about love that we would mention that chapter at some point in time. But here's how verse 3 reads, if I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned and have not love, I gain nothing. That's a very clear disavowal of empty actions. An action that might give everything to the poor and even suffer martyrdom for the Christian faith, but still continues to have no love motivating it. To love one's enemies, though, it it must result in doing them good. We get over and you look perhaps sometime at Luke's parallel teaching in Luke chapter 6, and you will see that there. But it's verse 44 here in our text this morning. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. As it says, it includes an action. Praying is an action. It is a powerful action. And it's not just this light thing, oh, I'll be praying for you, and off we go. Never think about the person again, or maybe, oh, yeah, I told him I'd pray for him. Lord, bless them. Then we move on. No, we must pray from loving hearts, even love for those that are persecuting us for our faith. And in this day and age, we have very unpopular standards within the culture because the culture is shifting more and more away from God, away from His law, and away from His Christ to its own ways. This is what I want, this is how I will live, and this is what I will do, and anyone who stands in my way, I'll take them to court, I will persecute them, and I will even see them die. That's the culture's view of us more and more in America today. Pray for them. Pray for them. Pray that God would do a mighty work in them, not so that they will treat you better, though that's not a bad motivation necessarily, but so that they will come to salvation. The great persecutor of the church, Saul of Tarsus, came to faith in Christ. 
and became the greatest preacher of the gospel and a man of incredible prayer for his people. So you're actually praying for God to bless your enemies, to bless them by bringing to them the salvation that was a gift to you, that he would reveal himself to them. And the end result of their salvation then is that they would become more and more like Christ. Isn't that what we're striving to do? Become more and more like Christ. If you read the language in Luke chapter 23 in the account of the crucifixion of our Lord, He seems to have been praying for his tormentors even as they took him and stretched him upon the cross and drove the stakes into his hand and into his feet. Because we have this imperfect tense that says he kept praying. He kept repeating this entreaty. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Not a single statement, but an ongoing desire for God's forgiveness for those who are killing his son. John Stott wrote in his commentary on Matthew, if the cruel torture of crucifixion could not silence our Lord's prayer for his enemies, then what pain, pride, prejudice, or sloth could justify the silencing of ours. Think about that. Well, you don't understand what they did to me. I don't, but I understand what they did to my Lord. And it goes against everything within the human nature, but it is Christ's nature to forgive More, to love even those who hate. You were yet sinners. Christ died for you. Let me remind you, you were enemies of Christ. And while you were yet sinners, Christ died for you. Love your neighbor, warm, generous, costly, careful, self-sacrificing love for another person. Verse 47, if you greet your brothers only, what more are you doing than others? And greeting there, uh, that refers to uh, upon meeting a person, expressing a heartfelt concern, a desire for their welfare, much as you greeted each other this morning. Oh, it's so good to see you. How are you? Anything I can pray for you about? It is a careful, caring greeting that we give one to another, and we must do so even for a lost world and even for our enemies. People who so love their enemies and so greet their enemies and so pray for their persecutors even prove themselves to be conformed to their heavenly Father. You see, all of this Verse 45 says, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. 
Not only have you been declared to be sons of God, children of God, we are striving more and more to be like our parents. Levi and I were talking this morning in relationship to to the children in the church. Do you understand that they are listening to your conversations with each other? Do you, do you understand that they hear the attitude uh, that you speak to one another with here in the church and also in your homes? And if I lose my call in the hallway because somebody says something that I don't like and my granddaughter Clara is there, she will observe it and learn it and act in kind. It's the nature of children looking at their parents and those who are their elders, yes? Look to God, little children, and be like Him. He's the perfect parent. He's the perfect father. He's everything that fathers should want to be. He's everything that mothers should want to be. And we should look to Him, for He lives certain way, and we want to live in conformity to the likeness of our heavenly Father. And so Jesus is teaching us, demonstrate a higher moral standard than the average unbeliever. Love your enemies. Pray for them who persecute you. Greet those who might just as soon snub you and walk the other way. And built out of that desire to be like God, then then let's look at what Jesus said that that the Father does. Verse 45 again. He makes his son, it's his son, he can do what he wants to with it, right? He makes his son rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust. This is God's common grace. It is for all humanity. He gives good provisions in nature. And if you're like Him, then you will have a reward. If you just treat everybody the way everybody else does, love those who love you, you have no real reward there. What are you doing more than other people? We are distinctively different. Now, let me stop and say this. Even though we are distinctively different, we don't just roll over and accept everything. We follow God's standard, yes? I want to be merciful toward those who do not obey God, but I cannot condone their sin. And likewise, if we're called upon to go to court, we go there. But we also know that God has established government and court systems to bring justice in this time. And if you are being abused or mistreated, there's nothing wrong with with seeking justice. But when justice is refused you, you just trust God to handle it. None of that was ever intended for the individual. It was intended for the government. 
God appointed the government to care for the people, despite what you see happening in government. And so we cannot condone sin, but we bring to bear upon sin that which can change it. We bring the gospel to bear. We're too busy trying to reform people and not busy enough telling them about the Savior. You follow what I'm saying? Oh, if I could just change them, pray for them, ask God, and then do the most loving thing you can do for them, tell them that they are a sinner in need of a Savior, that their life does not match up with what God requires that their selfishness is sending them to hell. You say, well, that doesn't sound very loving. Of course it's loving. You've warned them. Now give them the solution. Put your faith in the perfect Son of God who loved perfectly. And so we share our love indiscriminately as God shares His provisions indiscriminately. But... Don't assume that because he sends rain and sunshine and and all of that upon lost people that there is no distinction. Don't assume that with common grace, everybody's ultimately going to be saved. That's not the teaching of Scripture. The same Jesus teaches otherwise. You go over to Matthew chapter 25, and and, and he shows that at the time of judgment, then shall the king say to them on his right hand, come ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Because you took care of the hungry and the poor, those who were sick and those who were in prison, and as much as you've done it for one of the least of those, you've done it unto me. Then he says to those on his left hand, depart from me, I never knew you. There is a distinction. You must come to know God through Jesus Christ. Yes. And we possess that gospel within us, Christians. Yes. Is it for us to hoard and keep and clutch to ourselves like robbers? Oh, I've got it, and I'm not going to give it away. No, there's plenty for you and for the world. And so we share the gospel without any sort of bias toward the person. Jesus said, if you love me, though, you'll keep my commandments. And the great commandment is go and and share the truth. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I, Jesus speaking, kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. And how many times have we seen this in studying Old Testament and New? Without obedience, there is no real love. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. A loving thing is to obey your parents. And we drill that into our children. 
but we do so out of love. But know this, where there is no obedience, there is no real love. God's love here in Matthew chapter 5, verses 44 and 45, is referring to his common grace, that gracious favor that he bestows commonly without distinction upon men. He could, though, with justice, condemn all men, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, right? Instead, he shows favor, a prolonged waiting. Judgment has not yet come. There is still time for them to come to Christ. You remember that the Lord told Abraham, you'll return here to Canaan. Your people will return here at the appointed time. But then he said, The iniquity of the Amorites has not yet come to its fullness. And so he gave the Amorites, the Canaanites, all of those people, gave them 400 years after having heard the truth of God from Abraham, he gave them 400 years to repent. But they would not. And so their destruction finally came. God's love is not without distinctions. There is a common grace, but then there is an efficacious grace, an effective grace, one that brings salvation, that produces eternal life. But right now, every person who is breathing has a chance to hear the gospel and to come to faith and repentance. This has always been the case. I just gave you an Old Testament example, and lately, if you've been listening to some popular preachers and some, some, some teaching out there that says, well, because the Old Testament was so harsh, because it requires an eye for an eye, we just looked at that. Not for the individual. Because it calls for the destruction of one's enemies. Leviticus says in Leviticus 19.18, love your neighbor. And Jesus showed who the neighbor was, right? In the story of the Good Samaritan, the hated Samaritans, the hated half-breeds. But he's the one that showed love. So, therefore, these teachers say, just, just come to the New Testament. Leave that Old Testament behind Well, folks, the problem is, if you don't understand the Old Testament, you probably will leave it behind. But we understand God has never changed. His heart has never changed. He has never changed. And the Old Testament law, now we look at Jesus' explanation of it, and we understand, oh, that's what God meant all the time. And those those teachers are saying, leave the Old Testament behind and just concentrate on the New Testament. It's all about gentleness. It's all about turning the other cheek. It's all about loving our enemies. It's all about accepting people where they are and all of these things. And they have separated it and they have taken the old and warped it. And now they are taking the new and warping it. And all is the same. It's been accomplished in Jesus Christ now. I'm not trying to confuse you, 
But I want you to understand, God's law has always been the law of love. Jesus just shows what the law has always meant. I mean, go back and think of Noah. God gave him a job to do. And while he was building the ark, you remember that story? Okay, just making sure. While he was building the ark, what was he doing for the hundred years it took him to build the ark? Somebody just say one word really loud. Preaching. The New Testament tells us he was preaching, and they were making fun of him. They were saying, what's this weird thing you're building? What are you talking about a flood? We don't even know what you could possibly mean. Let's go watch crazy Noah build his ark, whatever that is. Let's go watch. And they made fun of him, and he just kept preaching the gospel. He didn't keep his mouth shut. You say, well, all these people in 100 years are going to get theirs when God floods the world. No. He preached the truth of the gospel that they may have life and salvation. I think of David um, and Saul. I mean, Saul was trying to kill David all the time, Right? Saul was the king. David was the king anointed and, and, and would, would have been next. But instead of taking vengeance and, and action in his own way, he trusted God. And he spent a great deal of time on the run. He spent a great deal of time fleeing from the sword of Saul. He had the opportunity to run Saul through. And he walked away and let him live. Is that not what Jesus is saying? Leave vengeance to God. God took care of Saul in his time. God took care of the people in the days of Noah in his time. It wasn't for the individual. It was for God to take care of. So it is for us. Jonah went and he finally agreed to preach to the city of Nineveh. And they repented. And some of those people came to to Christ, we would say, but not all. And ultimately, the Assyrians, God used them to eradicate the northern kingdom. But then guess what? After the northern kingdom has been scattered and strewn everywhere, within two years after the accomplishment of all of that, the Assyrians just disappear. Just disappeared. She must have heard me said, Hey Siri. <laughs> Sorry about that. They just they just vanish. They're gone. God took care of it. It wasn't for Jonah to say, I'm going to withhold the preaching of the gospel from them and have them be destroyed. That wasn't his purview. His job was to walk through one end of the city to the other and proclaim that if you do not repent, you are going to be destroyed. You see? It is not for the individual to take vengeance and to withhold the love of Christ. God will wash all of that out. At end of days. And so while the state has to execute justice, even on behalf of of Christians, I mean, Paul appealed to Rome. But his motivation was the gospel. 
His motivation was that he would preach to more rulers. But we as individuals, we never retaliate. We love. We forgive. And it's just crazy, or at least unsound, to conclude that the Old Testament requires harshness for an enemy and the New Testament overcomes that dark picture that was there and demands a, a, a new unqualified love. No, it's always been the same, verse after verse. So we are heirs of the kingdom And because we are heirs, we are also sons, and we are like Christ, and therefore we preach Him crucified. That's God's example. God's example of of common grace, and that provides incentive for us as His followers to be sons of the Father. That's who we are, and it is who we are becoming to be persecuted because of righteousness. As verse 9 talks about, that's to be like the prophets, verse 12. To bless and pray for those who persecute us is to exhibit the character of God. And all of these verses show that Jesus' disciples must live a certain way, completely different and qualitatively better than the usual patterns of a fallen humanity. Think think of the temporary rewards when you go against what Christ has taught. You take the the, the eye for an eye passage and you and, and 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 you and you utilize that in some way. And someone told a lie about you, and you uh, responded by telling a lie about them, or they treated you a certain way, and you treated them the same way. And and how did you feel at the end of that? We like talking about our feelings, don't we? How did you feel about that? You feel guilty? Feel empty? Was not the satisfaction just for a moment? And then were you not crushed in the reality that you were not like Christ? I mean, that, that fleeting retaliation provides no lasting satisfaction, just guilt and pain. And if we just love those who love us, that's satisfying. But it's just exactly what everybody else in the world does too. And the life of a new redeemed humanity is based upon the divine love that we have described in Christ. And he could have called 10,000 angels and could have destroyed the world the day that he was crucified. And yet he willfully, willfully went to the cross, refusing to take revenge. But ultimately, he overcame evil, our evil, with good. So in verse 48, we have a little conclusion. The paragraph that began in verse 43 with the retaliation teaching, or with the love of your enemy teaching, rather. And it ends with a command that just kind of summarizes all, uh, all six of Jesus' teaching here on the law. Be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, I I said I would return to this uh, 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 perfection, uh, sinless perfection idea that some have. I can remember this lady in the first church where I did music. 
I was like 17, 18 years old, something like that, and very, very young in the faith and in my understanding of Scripture. But I knew that what she said was absolutely wrong because she said one morning as we were getting ready to go into the choir loft, she said, uh, I've never sinned. I said, yeah, I want to be you, right? <laughs> I've never sinned. I became a Christian, so I have never sinned. And she had a total misunderstanding. I mean, all you have to do is go to 1 John. It says the one who says they were out or without sin is what? A liar, and the truth is not in them, right? But she said that, and she meant it. She believed that because she was in Christ that she had achieved sinless perfection. No, because I'm in Christ, I am blatantly, constantly aware that I am still a sinner in need of a Savior. I cast myself humbly and completely upon Christ. And the challenge here is not to be perfect, but challenge is for us to grow in obedience to God's will. Study it, learn it, see what it is, then obey it. That's why we sit here and we go through sermons and we go through Bible studies and we have personal scriptural time and we say, wow, this is what God says I need to be like today. And I become more and more conformed to the image of Christ. One writer said, sinless perfection is impossible, but godliness is attainable. But godliness can't be just boiled down to a little set of rules. Jesus' teaching here in chapter 5, as we come to the conclusion of it, are suggestive of greater than his little examples. It's not, he wasn't speaking exhaustively. He was speaking in godly principles. And so if you and I go here and we look at chapter 5 and say, well, as long as I follow these exact examples that Jesus gave here, well, I'm okay. Well, who does that sound like? Sounds like the Pharisees who had taken God's law and boiled it down to a few examples and said, well, as long as I have not committed the physical act of adultery, I'm okay. As long as I have not committed the actual murder, I'm okay. As long as I give a bill of divorce to the woman I've been married to, I'm okay. As long as I don't lie under oath in a court of law, I'm okay. But then in their practices, they lusted, they hated, they, they divorced for whatever reason they wanted to. They took oaths and didn't keep their word. And on and on it went, and they believed in an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And every time they presented their little narrow thinking, Jesus, Jesus just said, no, it's bigger than that. It's broader than that. It covers your whole life. And if you and I start boiling things down into one little area and say, well, I'm doing okay here and there, then I'm no better than the Pharisees. Hatred, lust, lying, revenge, all manner of, of, of wrong desire. Our life in any area of it.
Do you realize that we are ambassadors for Christ? How many of you remember that verse, learning that verse? 2 Corinthians. Turn in your Bibles as we close this morning. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I'm going to read out the New American Standard Bible. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 14. This describes who we are supposed to be, and then it describes who we are. For the love of Christ controls us. Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. Let me stop there. We are dead to self. We are alive in Christ. Verse 15, he died for us all, that we who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Therefore, from now on, we recognize no man according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. Therefore, if any person is in Christ, is a new creation, the old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed the word, to, uh, committed to us the word of reconciliation. That's the gospel. It is the gospel. And all who receive the gospel into their hearts will become followers of Jesus Christ. Not all will, but those who do may. Therefore, we have this message. We have this message given to us. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. Verse 20. As though God were entreating through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's our message. An ambassador speaks for the nation who has sent them. Christ has sent us. We speak for Christ. Should we not therefore speak the words of Christ and live the example of Christ? Because if we go and claim to be ambassadors for Jesus and the world and we live contrary to the teachings of the Word of God, what kind of ambassadors are we? We're false ambassadors. We need to be recalled. And so we live the life of Christ before a fallen world and we preach the gospel of Christ. And that's what Jesus is saying in all of these teachings. You're my followers. Take my message and look like me. Old Testament, Exodus 34, verses 6 through the beginning of verse 7, God says this, the God who never changes, the God who stands at every point in time simultaneously, the God who declares the end from the beginning and could have just as easily declared the beginning from the end God says, the Lord, the Lord, 
A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands. We are his example. We are his ambassadors. Yes, God set higher standard in the new covenant in Jesus' blood than in the law, but his heart has never changed. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. I referred earlier to the parallel passage in Luke. And Luke 6.36 gives us the essence of all of this teaching, the essence of God's image into which we are being made and renewed. And here it is. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. As we have been forgiven by Him, so let us forgive. And as He has loved us, let us love even our enemies. Father, your word cuts. It is a sharp two-edged sword. It reveals the truth and then reveals how, how, how much I have fallen short of your word. Cut away that which looks like me and place it with that which looks like you, Lord Jesus. That is my prayer, and I ask that that be the prayer of many who are here gathered this morning. Lord, you are a great God, strong to save, extending your forgiveness toward thousands, but not withholding your judgment upon those who reject you. So, Lord, strike each heart just as you will. If you are here this morning and your desire has been from the outset of the gospel challenge that was presented to you at the beginning of the sermon, and your desire is to come to faith in Christ and to have your life conformed to his image and to God, then I would encourage you right now, rise up, walk down this aisle, not to me, but out those doors, and one will meet you there. And we'll explain to you the truth of the gospel. And Christians, I would imagine that each one of us have been challenged in this teaching of our Lord. We have been weighed and found, found wanting. So forgive us, O oh God. And you may just cry out to him and ask him this morning to drive his word deep into your soul and change your life, change your attitude, change your desires, change your wills into those that are his. If you need somebody to pray with you, find me after the service. We'll pray with you spend time with you. Oh God, hear our prayer. We offer it in accordance with your will. In the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen.